When my son uh, Henry, when our son Henry was uh, a little guy, he was incredibly afraid of anybody who wore a white coat. So um, we have all these stories of physical altercations with him, um, with doctors, with, uh, with dentists, and we, particularly, I, I, this is very vivid in my mind, with one TSA official who tried to frisk him, uh, coming on a, trying to get on a flight from Florida to come to Pennsylvania. And he was this just little cute guy. I mean, he was maybe like three or four at the time, but he had this incredible right hook, and you wouldn't see it coming. And he had, some of you actually served in nursery at the time and have felt that. So, um, but, you know, it's, it's funny, as much as Henry is afraid of um, that feeling of dread um, with people in white coats, some of you can identify with this, right? Some of you uh, also have this sort of dread of um, doctors, dentists, TSA officials. Um, and why? It's because for m- many of these people, they have the threat to bring bad news, right? So the doctor, the doctor has the power. You, you go to for your checkup and you dread going for your checkup because the doctor can find something wrong for you that's going to mean discomfort and pain in the future. You go to the dentist and the dentist is going to find something that's going to mean drilling in your mouth. You, you don't want this. You're gonna, you, go to, um, you go to the mechanic, state inspection, worst time of the year for me with the car because it's going to mean Money. I know it's going to mean money. Uh, and what, you know, or, or you go for your performance review with your boss. And your boss gives you, here's the things to work on. Bring stress. All of these people we dread because they can bring bad news. And we'd rather, in some ways, there's part of us would, which would rather not know. We'd, we'd sort of rather um, not have to do the state inspection, not have to do the dentist visit, not have to do the doctor's office, not have to do the performance review. Because we'd rather not know. As much as we don't want to know, we also sort of do want to know. Because what may be painful now, what may be a diagnosis now, may bring something that will prevent a whole lot more pain later. If you have tooth decay and it's untreated, it's going to, get, it's going to be more complicated later on. If you have a break problem and you're... You don't want the mechanic to tell you what you want to hear. You want the mechanic to say, really, we need to get this fixed. This could be bad. Unchecked high blood pressure. You may not want to hear it, but you actually do want to hear it. You'd like to know. You want someone who's going to tell you the truth. And today we're in this study, in the the letter that Jesus sent in the book of Revelation to these seven churches in Turkey. And we've been going through each one. We're coming to this last letter today, the letter to the church at Laodicea. And these are are letters that are written to people, just a group like this, sitting in a room together, trying to do life together, a church in an ancient city. And we read here, Jesus has bad news. This is the kind of downer sermon. I'm sorry. I don't know why I picked this one for the last one. But uh, this is is the kind of downer letter. And I, I can imagine John who is dictating this. Jesus says, John, sit down and write these things out. And you can, you can just see it. He's going along this mail route. And we, we've talked about how um, each of these churches are sort of, the, you can tra- trace a line. It's just a mail route on this pathway through Turkey. And you can see John going like, oh, I've got some really great ones at the beginning, but I've got to deliver this really bad one at the end. And it's, it's, it's kind of rough news. It, Here's Jesus, and, and you may feel like Henry at the end of this message. You may feel like, I want to punch someone. 
Because we're hearing this morning from Dr. Jesus. Jesus is pictured in many places. Um, in, in these letters, there's always a description of Christ that sort of matches the condition of the church, matches the situation of the church. So to some of the churches, some of the churches that were dealing with persecution, Jesus shows, he's, he's like, I got boots on. I'm, I'm with you. I am, I'm the one who's going to carry you through. For those who are struggling with the truth, Jesus is like, I've got a sword, which is the, the, the truth. And it divides things. It cuts through lies. And Jesus has, we kind of, kind of like see Jesus in different outfits for different churches here. And it's helpful. These were encouraging words. But this one, the description of Jesus is, he's the amen. Amen means it's true. He's the true and faithful witness. He's, he's a doctor who comes... And his word, his checkup for this church is one where you don't need a second opinion. He's coming to say, this is, this is what's going on, and I need to tell you this, because what's painful now is going to be a lot better than what could be much pain, more painful later. What's complicated or messy or you don't want to deal with right today, I need to tell you these things. You need to hear this. As much as you don't want to hear this, you know, one of the things we've noticed about these letters is that Jesus is not cynical about the church. Many of you are. Many of you had good reasons for being cynical about the church. Maybe you've walked through churches in the past where you've seen horrible things done, said, in the name of Jesus. And you're like, I know that's not right. And yet Jesus looks at this church in Laodicea and he's not skeptical. Some of you can identify very readily with the bumper sticker that says, Jesus, save us from your followers. You're like, high five to that. And I understand why. A friend of mine told me, he's, he's going through a really rough time with his church. He's like, you know, my faith's not shaken, but my religion is. It's hard. But you're not a doctor. You know, think about this. You, you've walked around the church. You've seen the superficial stuff. You've seen the mess on the outside, but Jesus is the physician. He's the one who's looked at the x-rays. He sees comprehensively. And where you may be tempted to say, you, you may be here this morning saying, this is kind of my last-ditch effort. I'm here today, and I'm sort of almost done. Stick a fork in me. I'm really tired of, the, of Christians. Jesus is not cynical. He sees comprehensively. And even though this is kind of the problem child of these seven churches... He's not cynical. He's a hopeful doctor. He comes to them and says, I'm not done with you. I've got some intense things to say, but I'm hopeful, not cynical. So this morning, we're going to take our spiritual temperature. Time for a checkup. And like this church at Laodicea, we're going to look at Jesus' diagnosis and then his prognosis and then his treatment plan. So let's, let's look at this together. The need for a checkup. Dr. Jesus says something kind of profound in this passage. Something that may not be obvious to us. He says this, you can be sick and never know it. Look at this, verse 17. Verse 17, this is a church that says, we're rich, we're prosperous. We need nothing. Not realizing, as Jesus says here, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Your condition is not what you think it is. 
You know, I, I'm always amazed by those episodes on the daytime talk shows where the, get, the host will have a bunch of women in a room who he'll bring in, and all of them had been pregnant and suddenly delivered a baby but never knew they were pregnant. Have you seen those shows, right? This, I think this is the only show that Mari Povich ever did, just the same episode over and over, right? So he'd get these women, and they'd line up. They'd come in together in the room, and they would tell their story, all of them first-time moms. They'd been pregnant, and they kind of felt weird one day, kind of sick. I don't know what's going on. And out pops a baby. And, and I'm like, what? Really? 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 I mean, we've been through this several times. The pregnancy, the delivery, none of it was a, a real mystery to me. Like, none of this is a surprise. And, you know, as funny as that is, the truth is that spiritually, that's the case. There are things that can be growing in your life that you're not aware of. That under the surface, things that are not obvious to you, there, there are ways that you can be oblivious to the spiritual reality that you are walking in. We're, we're, a, we're a culture that believes that our own intuition and our own feelings, our own self-assessment is always right. We never doubt those things. We, we look at ourselves, I'm like, I know me. I know me. I know what's going on with me. But spiritually, we can be a church like the Laodicean church that's kind of, everything looks good. Programs are growing. Things are happening. In your personal life, you can say, man, look, I'm showing up. I'm here. I'm part of a home meeting. I'm a leader. I'm a deacon. I'm doing things. I'm I'm active. And yet, Jesus says your own self-diagnosis can be off. This is one of the deepest spiritual truths that is the most difficult for Americans to get. Susan and I recently flew on one of those puddle jumper airplanes. Um, We flew on one of those ones that's got the, the twin propellers on either side, eight people in the cabin. And it's kind of unnerving to me. Uh, we, we get up and, you know, we're, we're going along and I'm sitting, and, and one of the flights, I'm sitting right behind the pilot. So I can see all his dials and gauges and all these kind of things. And I'm really glad he's got those. He, do, he doesn't just have like a stick right there, like in the old movies. Because uh, I'm watching these things and they're all like flipping around and all this. And we go through this really dense cloud. And we're at it. We're Next to Puerto Rico, we're flying around Puerto Rico, huge mountains everywhere. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy can't see anything. And I'm glad he's got the gauges. I'm glad he's got these things, the altimeter that's like doing this, but telling him like we're cruising along because I would not know it if we were headed for a mountain. And the truth is, spiritually speaking, your gauges aren't reliable. You look down on the dashboard and the altimeter is doing this and you think you're, doing, you're cruising along, spiritually speaking... As Jesus tells his church, you may say, doing great. Aren't we prosperous? Doing well. Christian. Got it together. People approve of me. You could be completely off. That, that cloud bank covers a mountain behind it. There's a, there's a potential here for a hidden sickness in your life. So let's... Let's listen to what Dr. Jesus says. He tells us, you're not reliable. Listen to what I have to say. Listen to what I have to say. Look at Jesus' diagnosis of this church. This is probably, um, incidentally, one of the most, as we've been going through these letters, this letter has some of the most well-known lines. 
maybe, maybe you've been around the church for a while. You might know some of these lines, but I would tell you this is the one of the most misunderstood and misapplied passages of Scripture from all the Bible. Look at what Jesus says. Let's take your temperature. Verses 15 and 16. You're neither hot or cold, but lukewarm. You're neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. Now, this is puzzling for a lot of people. Uh, for many years, I misinterpreted this passage because we think we know what this means. Jesus saying, you're, you're, you know, I want hot or cold, but not lukewarm. We know what hot is, right? We, we, this is NCAA season. We talk about people having a hot hand. We talk, we, we, we talk about being fired up when, when people are excited. Um, we, we think that, you know, if we are people who are passionate about something, we're on fire. And so that makes sense, okay? But cold to us implies what? Apathetic, indifferent, unmoved, unfeeling. So back this up with me. Jesus is saying, I would rather have you be hot or cold than lukewarm. And a lot of Christians have looked at this and said, how is it that Jesus actually prefers people who would be cold in reference to the Christian faith, indifferent, don't care, not at all interested. How is it that Jesus could actually prefer indifference to Christians who are sort of in there but just not excited? There's something else going on here that can't be the picture of what's happening. To understand this, this image, you have to understand a little bit about who Jesus is writing to. These people in Laodicea were in one of the wealthiest towns in all of Turkey. This was a wealthy, prosperous city. And um, the city was known as a banking center. It was known as a center of trade. They had this black wool that you couldn't get anywhere else that made it. And, and they had this a great textile industry. They had a medical school and a university there that was world famous. And this was a very prosperous place. But Laodicea lacked one thing, one natural resource, water. The city had no water source. And so they had two neighboring towns. On one side... Heropolis is six miles away from, from Laodicea. And it's a six-mile stretch. Over in Heropolis, uh, it's not a very prosperous place, but it's known for its hot springs. In Heropolis, they had these hot springs, these kind of spa-like conditions. Uh, the water coming out of the ground would be about 95 degrees. And it was known as a place of healing. People would go and, and go to this place for physical healing. On the other side, it's this, 11 miles away, is the town of Colossae where the book of Colossians was addressed to. And Colossae had a freshwater spring, cool, fresh spring water. And the town of Laodicea made a deal with Colossae. They built an aqueduct 11 miles over to that city and had water routed from there all all the way to Laodicea. But by the time it got there, of course, it's not cool, fresh spring water. It's been traveling through an aqueduct 11 miles, and it's lukewarm, And it often made the residents of the city sick by the time it reached them. Stuff would be growing inside the aqueduct. It was was just not healthy. So when Jesus speaks these words, these people are like, I think I know what he means. You're neither hot or cold, you're lukewarm. What, What does Jesus mean by this for us? He's not saying, hey, are you fired up? Excited about your faith? He's saying, does your 
spirituality, does your faith, does your belief in God matter? Does it have any influence? Like the hot springs, you have the hot springs on the one side, a place of healing. Does your faith, does your spirituality, does your following of Jesus produce any healing in the lives of other people, people who are hurting? Or, on the other side, Colossae, cold spring water. Is your faith, is your connection to God overflowing in such a way that it provides refreshment to those who are weary? That's what they found there. Or is it like the Colossus, like the people way to see it? It's lukewarm. It's not. It's worthless. It makes makes you sick. When I was in college, I worked for a summer uh, in Appalachia in Kentucky, and my job was hosting high school youth groups. And we'd bring in these high schoolers, and we'd do home repair projects. And so we, for one house, we built a, a, a handicapped bathroom. This guy was disabled. We built this great handicapped bathroom. I was so proud of this. I did the plumbing myself. So I was really excited about this. The guy was really excited about it until we turned the water on. Because as soon as we turned the water on, steam rises up from the toilet. And I was like, ugh, hot water to the, to the toilet. Had to redo the whole thing. Um, but it's a similar question in this passage. What is flowing out of your pipes? What's flowing out of your life? Is your life a source of refreshment to others? Is it a source of healing to others? Americans, we love to evaluate our faith in terms of excitement, don't we? How meaningful is this to me? American Christians, we, our faith is supposed to be private and personal. It, it's, it's for me. It's for my encouragement. It's, it, it makes me feel good about myself. It's, it helps me to face my problems and face the world. And Jesus says, I am measuring your temperature by a completely different thermometer. You're measuring, am I hot or am I cold? Am I excited or indifferent? And Jesus is saying, no, that's not how I measure. I don't measure by the sense of personal satisfaction that you have day to day. I'm looking at your life and saying, is there any overflow? What's spilling off? Is it just runoff? Is it just complete runoff? Think about your life. This is very easy to do. Who are the people in your world that are hurting, that are weary, that are beat up? What's the influence? Is is your faith about you? This is the gauge of whether we are hot or cold or lukewarm. Is there... Is there something flowing out of your life that provides refreshment for the weary? You're a, you're a word of encouragement. You're a person who walks through trials with people. You're a person who provides the kind of care that people could say, that can only come from God. Or conversely, flowing out of your life, is there healing? Are you a person who's able, who, who just coming out of the way you pray for people, the way you, you think about people and care for them, is there healing coming in the lives of those who are broken and who are honestly falling apart? Is there something flowing of substance out of your life? See, if you're like me, my religion becomes about me very quickly. It's the gravitational pull. It's always going to come back to self. Jesus says, be careful, watch out. This is the call. This is the appeal. What's your temperature? 
Are you bored with Christianity? Are you sort of bored? You know, I've heard all this before. It's a nice kind of message. Yeah, yeah. I got a home meeting. It's all right. All right, I'm sort of done with that. And I'm not really getting much out of that. Because it's about you. It's all about you. And Jesus is saying, I can't let you stay there. I am not going to let you stay there. Look, it's, it's interesting. Where does a lukewarm heart come from? How do you catch this? How do you catch this sickness? We know a lot about this city of Laodicea. It was a wealthy place. As I mentioned, they had this incredible university. They had incredible textile industry. They had incredible banking industry. And Jesus comes to them with some very pointed words to them. He comes to them to a city that was so wealthy that after an earthquake in AD 60, they didn't even need help from the government. This would be like uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina saying, federal government, we got this one. Don't worry about it. We can, we can pay our own bills. That's how wealthy this city was. And Jesus comes to him and says, you think you're wealthy, but you're absolutely poor. He comes to them and, ch- and it, when he speaks to them, he's showing us something. That there is an absolute direct link between being rich, between being accomplished, between being people who are able to achieve, and being spiritually lukewarm. In other words, the people in this room right now are in the most dangerous place. You are a gifted, educated, wealthy, impressive group of people. That's what Liberty Church is. We are a wealthy, impressive group of people. Many of you have accomplishments that I, sometimes I'm just kind of blown away. I'm like, wow, I had, I had no idea. Kind of keep that in the closet. Keep that in the back pocket. Don't, you know, you don't brag about stuff. But Jesus is showing us, look, when you're wealthy, when you're accomplished, when you're educated, when you have high achievement, you are in incredible danger of spiritual sickness. You're in incredible, a place of incredible danger of being sick spiritually. Watch out. This is the ideal laboratory setting. This is the perfect Petri dish for self-reliance, for being in a place where we don't need God. I've had a privilege um, many times of spending some time overseas in third world countries and speaking to pastors. I spent a summer in Mexico City. I spent some time in Brazil, in Haiti, and talking to some of those pastors. You ask them this. What is your opinion of the American church? And they're always slow to answer that question. They don't want to give you the answer. You know what the same answer is over and over? I pity the American church. I pity the American church. If that strikes you as odd, listen to these words. These are the words uh, written by a Chinese pastor named Brother Yun in his book, The Heavenly Man. He writes this, before I traveled to the West, I had absolutely no idea that so many churches were spiritually asleep. I presume the Western church was strong and vibrant because it had sent the gospel to my country with incredible faith and tenacity. Many missionaries had shown a powerful example to us by laying down their lives for the sake of Jesus. But when I came to speak Western churches, I've struggled. There seems to be something missing that leaves me feeling terrible inside. In the West, many Christians have an abundance of material possessions, yet they live in a backslidden state. The rest of the world looks at us and says, you're so rich. You're really so poor. You have it so together. 
but you don't even see how naked you are. You, you, you seem to really, you Americans, you seem to really have it, and you have nothing for all of your accomplishments. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of these same words um, of worry for the American church in his open letter to the church uh, entitled Letter from a Birmingham Jail. And he says this, There was a time when the church was powerful in the time when early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that just recorded the setting for the rest of the culture and then matched it, but was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Small in number, they were big on commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as gladiatorial contests, as infanticide. But things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by a silent church. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of early Christians, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club. Surely not us, right? Surely, Surely not liberty. Surely not us. Let me help you take your temperature. As one writer says, you may say, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I can I agree with that. But if anybody looks at your life, your life doesn't really feel like you believe you're a sinner saved by grace. It's like you're an accomplished person and you check the Jesus box too. Or when your friends bump up against you, do, do they look at your life and it really rings out to them, I am a trophy of God's mercy. He has been so kind to me. Or is it, I've really, I am really profoundly good at the American dream. And can I add Jesus onto it? Do you see what risk that is? Americans want to make Jesus a slice of our lives. We're saying, we have time for him on Sundays or Tuesday night. Sure, we can fit that in our schedule. With Jesus, the, the, what it means to follow him and know him means to have your entire life dragged into a completely different way of living and looking at the world, a different way of being. There's a direct link between spiritually, between being wealthy, between being accomplished, between high achievers, and being spiritually lukewarm. This was hard. It's hard. It's so hard to become, overcome being spiritually lukewarm when you're like us. When you're like us. This is hard for me. This is hard for Laodicea. They're, they're wealthy people. Jesus says, you've got great banks, but you're poor. You've got great textiles, but you're naked. You got, you've got this university produces a medical school with great eye ointment, and you are blind. To Luke, be lukewarm is to live as if what you have of Jesus at present is all you need. To say, what I know of Jesus today, what I have of Jesus in my life today, that's enough. It's to say, hungering for righteousness, hungering for personal holiness, hungering to throw off patterns of sin in your life, 
hungering to see change in your city, hungering to see the, the influence of God in the lives of people around you, those things become things that we're apathetic and indifferent to. I find myself in this. Do you? This is the gravitational pull of our hearts. This is the danger. As, as Jesus tells them here, the essence of lukewarmness is to say, as we read here, to say, I need nothing. Verse 17, I'm rich, I'm prospered, and I need nothing. Is this us? You would never go to a doctor who just gave you a diagnosis without saying, well, here's what's going to happen next. Here's the prognosis. You would never want to go to a doctor who said, "Um, here's everything that's wrong for you. Here's the x-rays. Look at what's going on. I'll see you in about three weeks. Now, Jesus is a good physician. He comes to these people and says, here's what's going on. And if unchecked, this is what's going to happen. And we read these scary verses, right? You are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, and so I will spit you out of my mouth. Can I tell you what this is about? This is very misunderstood. The Bible tells us that if you are a follower of Jesus, John 10, Jesus says, if you're one of my people, I have you in my hand, and nothing can take you away from me. There's nothing that you can do that's going to make you lose your salvation. And yet... Jesus writes these words, not to an individual. These aren't sing you or use. These are y'alls. He's writing to these people. Y'all are not hot or cold, but y'all are lukewarm, and I'm about to spit you, y'all, out of my mouth. It's a plural. Do you see what he's saying? He's writing this to a church. Individually, I've got you, but this great thing you got going on is in great danger. As a community, I'm going to have to break things up. I'm going to have to shift things around. I'm going to have to do things. But look at Jesus. He's not cynical. Remember I said this. He's not saying, I'm D-O-N-E. I'm done with you. He's saying, no, I'm giving you a chance. I want you to see what's happening. Here's, here's what's going to happen if this church isn't checked. If, if you don't listen to my words. But he write, he's telling these people, look, I'm giving you a chance. I want you to find healing. I want you to find wholeness. I want you to find restoration. So here's the doctor's treatment plan. Here's what Jesus prescribes for them. It's a radical plan, and it's not the plan I want. It's not the plan you want. It costs us the one and only currency that each of us and every person hates to pay. It's our own pride. Our own pride. Look at him, verse 18. To such a church who considered itself rich, Jesus says... Come buy gold from me that's been refined in the fire. To this church that has a great textile industry in their town, he says, come and buy clothes from me. Cover your nakedness and your shame. To this group of people who have a university that produces award-winning medicines, he says, come and buy from me eye ointment to cover your, so you, you can see. Buy from me? How do you buy something from Jesus? You know, salvation is, doesn't cost anything. It's, God's love is not for sale. He's, he's not saying, you know, you can come and do anything to gain this. He's saying, no, you've got to come and do business with me. You have to come and deal directly with me. And this is what Jesus is telling them, to come, this is the currency, and agree with him about their diagnosis. 
to come and agree with him. This is the first step of repentance to say, Jesus, you are the amen. You are the true one. You look at my life. You see the ways that I am self-consumed, that my faith is all about me. You see the ways that I tend to basically say, I'm comfort, I'm comfortable. I don't need anything else. That I'm indifferent and cold. Come and agree with me. Susan and I are big fans of Arrested Development, which uh, had maybe what, what two seasons. Uh, it's kind of got this cult following. Um, and it's a great comedy. Um, one of my favorite characters on the show is this guy named Tobias Funke. Okay? And Dr. Tobias was a former psychologist who, who uh, is now home, jobless and tries out different things like being in the Blue Man Group and several other jobs. But he's got this, this uh, made-up condition. Okay? He's got this disorder that's made up on the show. He's a never-nude. He can never be naked. That's the condition that Tobias has. So when he takes a shower, he has a little tiny pair of, uh, of cut-off jeans that he wears everywhere, under his underwear, okay? He's a never-nude, okay? Now, spiritually speaking, we are never-nudes. I know, this is a stretch, okay? I'm, a... <laughs> but there is a never-nude experience uh, or a spirit among the American church. We're like, I will run at anything that shows me Actually, how desperately I need Christ in my life. I will move away from any place of vulnerability. I will run from any kind of conviction. I will run from anything that shows me that I am pitiable, poor, weak. And so we are the most distracted group of people. We have earbuds in our ears so we can tune out the noise. We put entertainment in front of our vision so we don't have to think. We surround ourselves with people all the time so we don't have to be alone. We don't have to hear what Jesus has to say. Jesus invites us, though. Look, fellow never-nudes, fellow people who run from this, Jesus invites us to grab hold of his diagnosis of our lives. The spiritual tendency, you don't know your gauges. You tend toward apathy and indifference. And you tend toward privatization of your faith. And Jesus says, come, accept my diagnosis. I've got a healing path for you. Jesus never shows us these x-rays for our information. Instead, he shows us more of himself. This is is what Jesus shows us in this passage. I love this. Um, Look at verse 18. He shows us a corresponding picture of what he provides for this church. He says, buy from me gold refined in fire so that you can be rich. What's a gold refined in fire? Why, why is gold refined in fire? Why has Jesus counseled them this way? He suffered for us. It's a picture of Jesus himself. Jesus himself who took the heat for you. Jesus himself, whose life was poured out. You get this picture. Gold is heated up. It faces the fire and then is poured out. This is a picture of what Jesus does for us. His life. He's taken the heat for you. He's taken the fire of God's wrath for you. And he is the gold refined in fire. Jesus, your riches. Jesus, your clothing. He comes and tells them, buy from me clothes to wear. White clothes. So that they can cover your shame. Why white? What does a bride wear? 
white. For what purpose? It's a symbol of purity. When Jesus died on the cross, contrary to all the crucifixes you've seen, he was naked. Jesus became poor and pitiable and naked so that by knowing him, he clothes you. He robes you. He covers your shame. And Jesus, your sight, says, come, buy from me eye salve. There's a great picture in the New Testament where uh, there's, a, there's a man who's, who's blind and Jesus comes and spits in the dirt and puts stuff on his eyes. And he opens his eyes. And what's the first thing the man sees? Jesus. Jesus, our eye salve who helps us to see ourselves and helps us, more importantly, to see him. I, I, I've got a friend who's got um, glaucoma, who has to take drops every day. And if she doesn't take these drops, her vision will go away. And it's a great reminder to me of how quickly my vision will become blurry on Christ. And what's really mas- lasting, what really matters. Look, do you short-circuit God's grace in your life? Do you short-circuit God's grace in your life? I I hold up these pictures to you of spiritual apathy and indifference in your life. I hold up these pictures to you and I I say, look what Dr. Jesus says is on the x-ray. Chink. You look at this and you're like, this is discouraging. I want to look away. And some of us get stuck here where we stop at places where we're like, insight, insight, insight. It just kind of beats you up. You're like get more and more information about yourself. You love processing, you know, some of your problems. You love thinking through more and more all your dirt in your life. And Jesus says, that's not the point. Come, lay hold. Come and lay hold of Jesus, your riches. Jesus, your clothing. Jesus, the one who helps you to see right. And finally, embrace Dependence upon him. There's an invitation in this passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And this passage has been really misunderstood. A lot of times it's used as sort of like this, hey, if you're not a Christian, come in. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is knocking on the door of the lives of people who have said, I don't really need you. I've started out with you. I've known you. And Jesus is saying, I'm right here. I'm actually come and I brought dinner with me. You know, when I was in college, um, we had Parents Weekend. And Parents Weekend was really kind of a joke. Parents Weekend was actually an opportunity for you to invite your parents to the campus for them to stay in a hotel and spend money on you. That was really, you know, you're like, thank you for coming and spending money for my college and buying me dinner and some new shoes and some clothes. That's what Parents Weekend was about. And it, Parents Weekend is such a great picture of this image because Jesus stands at the door and knocks. And as many commentators have noted, this is a Jesus who's outside the door of the church saying, I want to come in, but I'm bringing dinner with me. I'm coming in. Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, this is kind of ancient language, but he says this, he will come in and have supper with us. That is, we'll be the host and entertain him. But really, he will be the the host. We will give him our best, but poor fare, too poor for him, and he will take it. Yet he will turn and be the host. And we will be the guests. And oh, how we will feast on what he gives us. Christ comes, he brings supper with him. And all we have to do is find space at the table. The master says to us, where's your guest room? And he comes and he spreads out a royal banquet. Now, if this is the terms 
on which we have to meet, have a feast together, we will most willingly fling open the doors of our heart and say, come in, good Lord. And he says to you, children, do you have any meat? No. But he will come in and bring the full meal. I warrant you, if we sup with him, we will be lukewarm no longer. Liberty Church, this is my last word to you. It has been one of the greatest privileges of my life to be your pastor. I am so grateful for this church. It's been so much more than a job. And it's been so much more than just something for us to pursue together. This has been our family, our spiritual community. But I have two words of warning. The two great dangers of this church are the great dangers for me and for you. Hard times may come ahead. Times where you're saying, these are times of great endurance for us. And in seasons of fear, we tend to turn our gaze inward and say, let's just keep the good thing we got going on. The call of Jesus is to be hot and cold water in this city. And if you lose that, you lose the essence of what we're about as a community. You're lukewarm. Second, the other danger for our church is to become so satisfied with who we are and our achievements that we lose sight of the fullness of Jesus, that we'd be able to say, what I have today of Jesus is enough. I can live off what I've had so far. And the earnest call, my appeal to you as a community is to strive after more of him. He invites us. He's our physician. We're, we live in health as long as we live closely tied to his heart. I love you dearly as a pastor. And I will miss serving with you. But I have great hope for this church. Because Jesus lives in the center of it. And because this is his people. And he is faithful. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear.